Welcome to episode 3 of Leading Insights, the podcast that tells leadership stories from across the public sector and beyond. In this episode, we are joined by Angelina Foster, Chief Executive of NHS 24. Angelina, can you tell us a little bit about your career pathway across the public service? Surely. Um, you politely call it a career, career pathway, Thomas. In truth, it's been um, a little bit um, higgledy-piggledy when I look back. Um, but I started out working in local government uh, in the area of uh, social housing and regeneration. And I was in local government in a couple of big uh, local authorities, Glasgow and Edinburgh, for 20-odd years. And there I cut my teeth on live service delivery at large scale. So I, I guess cutting my operational teeth. But I also learned some really important things over that period around um, how powerful it could be if you really engaged with your ultimate customers. So I learned the power of real tenant engagement to help you redesign and improve your your landlord services, for example. I also learned a bit of humility when I saw the level of leadership that local tenants' representatives, for example, would bring to their local community. Really outstanding uh, personal courage where people would put their head above the parapet to lead uh, the collective voice around a cause or an issue that was not good enough and they they chose to represent the local community. Those were people who did not have uh, some of the more traditional skills and attributes and training that many of our professional peer group would recognise. These were people that just brought um, care for their community, as I say, personal courage and uh, determination to the table. So that made me really think about what is the system that we're working in. And I tried after that to always take care to include the less obvious elements of the system, if you see what I mean. So not just the statutory bits and bobs, but the real community-based assets as well. So I learned a lot, I guess that's what I'm saying, in my time in local government. Then spent um, 12 or 13 years in the Scottish government. So that took me away from uh, front-end operational delivery and much more into policy and strategic work. So massively developmental for me. Tremendous, um, rich learning experience. I hadn't ever intended to stay quite so long uh, in national government, but it was also juicy and interesting and the people were fantastic, so stayed quite a while. And then found myself taking on a couple of um, NHS chief executive roles, one fairly rapidly after the other. And I should also say that in the course of my time in uh, Scottish government, uh, there were a couple of chief exec roles that were due to slightly unforeseen circumstances. More of that later, if you wish. Uh, so uh, it was a fabulously varied time in in Scottish Government and then more recently in the NHS. So um, if I'm answering that kind of question um, to an interview panel, then I will, of course, put tons of shape and strategic intent behind the journey. In truth, I would say it was fairly unplanned and certainly latterly the jobs found me rather than the other way around. Fantastic. What was it that uh, 
attracted you to a career in public service? Gosh, that's such an interesting question. Um, and the answer is actually deeply personal because my, my upbringing uh, was traditional at the time, I think, by which I mean my dad was the only breadwinner, my mum was a full-time mum, and I am very grateful um, for that, despite not having lived lived that model in my own life subsequently. But um, in relation to your question, my dad worked really hard, so he had a very strong work ethic, and I inherited that. But I have strong childhood memories of him coming home from work, having his dinner after us because he was home so late. And then as soon as he'd had his dinner, uh, the dining room table was cleared and out came his work papers. And that was just at the time one doesn't really reflect too hard because that's all you know as a very young child but then as you grow up you think gosh that's a lot of work anyway um, by the time I was graduating and deciding what to do with my life I decided that if I was going to work that hard it had to be in something that really really would make a difference and my father I couldn't say this to him whilst he was alive but he worked uh, with Hoover Limited, so his efforts were to sell more of one brand of vacuum cleaner washing machine than another. And I don't take away anything from that. We need people who do that. Was I prepared to work like a dog in order to sell more of my product than another? No, I was not. So public service was the obvious environment for me to look to because of that um, strong uh, sense of this needs to this needs to matter. Yeah. In your current role, what what does the role of a chief exec in public service actually involve? <laughs> Great question, and you will have many uh, many different answers answers to that, Thomas. But um, although in a minute I'll get a little more specific in what I say, I think the principal role of a chief executive is to make the weather in the organisation. What do I mean by making the weather? Um, it's a really important job. By making the weather, I mean you set the standards of behaviour you set the benchmarks around not just you know, what we're going to do, because typically what we're going to do is largely predetermined by quite proper public processes, but how we're going to do what we do is the thing that is within your gift. So as chief exec, you, you can both set those standards about how we're going to be with each other, and if you're going to set them, you need to model them. You can set the culture around, is this going to be a learning organization where th when things go wrong, we go into collective supportive learning mode or do we go into pointy finger, run a mile from any blame mode, land the blame on a colleague mode and, and, and. So there's all sorts of cultural behavioural things that I think is utterly crucial for a chief executive to be crystal clear. 
you make that kind of weather. Beyond that, and more specifically, then it's your job to make sure everybody is really clear what their role is about the place. So a little bit of process, you know, how, how good are your objective setting processes? And that sounds a little bit administrative, but absolutely critical. Does the organisation have a strategy? Can every person, including the most junior, draw a thread between their day-to-day tasks and the organisation strategy? If they can't, you've got something misaligned. So a lot of work to make sure that every layer of the organisation's to-do list nests beautifully in uh, the larger uh, strategic objective, because that is how I think we give people a a motivating day at work. Um, Also a big job, and increasingly one might argue, to uh, be the advocate for the resources of the organisation. And typically in the public service, that means you're a key interface with the provider of the funding, which uh, for almost everyone is ultimately the government. So a really important role there to develop all those relationships, establish the credibility of the organisation and secure the resources that you need. Um, I could go on a long time on this one, but the last thing I will mention is the the outward-facing role around stakeholder relationship development because it's very easy, I think, for an organisation to, without necessarily even realising it, operate in quite an introverted way. You get your deliverables and you're under pressure to produce 50 widgets an hour, so heads down, off we go. Um And I think it's a really important role of a chief executive to not let the organisation, let that be their rhythm of work and to keep them outwards facing, customer focused, constantly and quite systematically checking in with our customers. How satisfied are you with what our service offering is? How could we make it better? What does tomorrow's service offering need to look like? So in my current world, expanding digital channels, for example. Um, So keeping that more outward-focused perspective uh, within the organisation, I think, is a key job of the chief exec. And you've you've had a a number of uh, chief exec roles. And and over your career, you've taken over organisations and projects that could be described as being in distress. How, how do you approach that as a leader when you come into a project or organisation like that? Okay, great, great question, which again takes us into wonderfully crunchy territory. And although I by no means sought a career with a pattern of recovery or turnaround in it, I can't deny there is a bit of a pattern there that I guess is what you're alluding to. So... To your question, there will typically be some headline stuff going wrong that has caused um, either publicly narrated failure with um, quite understandable and legitimate anxiety, both at government and in the parliament. So that's usually the context for these moments. And the stuff that's gone publicly wrong, of course, needs fixed. Is it 
the principal area or the first area in which I would necessarily plough all my energies? Absolutely not. Is it typically the only or main areas that need quite root and branch uh, attention? Never. So uh, just illustrating that point with an example in my current organisation, because all of this is pretty well on public record, I think, but four years ago, my organisation got into trouble with a major IT reprocurement. So the headline failures, a word I try not to use frequently, but it's in truth the appropriate one in this context, the headline failures were being described as IT and procurement. And on one level, that was correct. But returning to the core of your question, Thomas, when I arrived here, where did I put my energies? Um, yes, a bit of that at, in IT and procurement, and that was principally focused around increasing the organization's capabilities and expertise in those areas. But once you've fixed that, you've fixed that. And there's a pile of other stuff without which the overall endeavor will not deliver. And that pile of other stuff relates to helping the organization to rediscover what it was good at in the first place. So more specifically, that's about building backup, individual and team confidence, spending time just listening to your staff. So my first few weeks in my current organization were not exclusively spent with the IT experts or the procurement people, but I sat down with frontline staff who had lived through two failed attempts to go live with the new IT platform, which incidentally was our clinical triage platform, so not a small thing. Yeah. Uh, and I just asked those colleagues to tell me what they felt had gone wrong. And the insights I got from the very front line were the most valuable insights. So I think there's quite a generic point in there about as a, a chief exec or a, a fairly senior player, never forgetting that um, the senior position you hold is at the top of a thing that's often described as the iceberg of ignorance, where, you know, at the top of anything triangular, there are yeah. limitations on the insights you can bring at your own hand. You have to be prepared to draw on the insights of colleagues at much, much more closer to the coalface bits of the organization. And if I may, Thomas, tie that in with my making the weather point. Because if you want to sit down and talk to frontline colleagues, you have to have made it safe for them to tell you the truth. It's a waste of time when you're in problem diagnostic mode. It's a waste of time if you just get a pile of politey, politey, safe 
chat back from your people. They have to really believe that they can tell you a hard truth and survive. And indeed, not just survive, but thrive and see the difference that telling that hard truth will have made. So that's not a dynamic that naturally exists in large public service organisations. You have to build that. So that's what I was talking about in terms of the making the weather point. And it was very relevant to me in that arriving in a recovery brief, how do you how do you go about finding out what on earth do I do to turn around this problematic operation? And throughout your career and especially now you you'll be you'll be aware I mean our workplaces are, are so busy nowadays mm-hmm. and we've got lots of competing interests. How, how should we try and ensure that the demands and new projects that come up are actually adding value to that organisation and beyond? So, going back to absolute first principles, I think it is all too possible to be extraordinarily busy on legitimate business that has come to you from a legitimate source, but not at the end of the week or the month or the career, indeed, to feel particularly fulfilled. So there is a huge difference between doing work that we know with absolute confidence is going to make a difference and work that um, isn't really going to make that or have the impact that we, in our heart of hearts, want it to make. So I think that requires us to be quite vigilant on our own behalf and on behalf of our colleagues, not to be passive in how we either take on a new role or simply accept the next ask on the organisation or on the team. I think we need to be really ready to say, um, to take the conversation beyond the this is what you need to do in the next 12 months to say yes but what is the difference that you my boss want me to have made by then so beyond the outputs that you want me to have achieved what are the outcomes that we organizationally or with partners are trying to drive and that can be very difficult to to have that conversation productively in an environment of um, urgency where a lot of the baseline, be it money or deliverables, is preset. But I think now more than ever that's a conversation that we need to have on our own behalfs wherever we are in the organisation. Because the truth is our health and care system is running hot and simply trying to find a sixth gear that we can all run in isn't going to miraculously reshape the system into a more sustainable place. So those moments of reframing the apparent ask 
I, I think they're increasingly important at the moment where we need to acknowledge we need to be reforming and redesigning our service offerings as much as producing existing service models as well as we can. I mean, you're, you're talking about that sixth gear and, and today's society, is things are moving at such a fast pace and as you're alluding to, some would say these are rather turbulent times. Yeah. How is it that you manage your own resilience and, and going a bit beyond that, how, how do you encourage your teams and those around you to do so too? Okay, and let me start with something that might sound a little bit off the wall, but I came across a snippet recently that um, is very relevant in this context, which was that sales of oranges are reducing. And when the Orange Manufacturers Association, I don't know if they exist, but you get my drift, whatever <laughs> yeah. the, the trade body for the such... powerful orange lobby. <laughs> in, indeed so. People who worry about sales yeah. of oranges, when they uh, noted this downwards trend, they commissioned uh, good quality research. And what that research has returned to them is the insight that people are eating fewer oranges because they take too long to peel. Gosh. <laughs> Indeed, gosh. So I start there um, to say it is not just our frantic health and care pressed system where that overall sense of, oh, you know, no time to stop and really ask some of these questions about meaning, purpose, value. So I think at a larger level, societal, uh, globally, we need to just get a bit of a grip. And, and it's hard for relatively junior members of the organization to be the people who say, let's get a grip, people. Yeah. The permission to do that, to have those conversations, has to come from people in leadership positions. So setting the tone that says... Let's look at this from a few angles. Let's check that it's going to be the best use of our resource. Let us, if necessary, find the courage to push back respectfully on whoever has commissioned this piece of work and suggest that if we tweak it in such and such a way, it actually might yield more value for all of us. Do you see what I mean? So that's... That's the job I think we all need to take care to do from wherever we are in the structure. And for me, that is, to return to your question, a critical part of my personal resilience. I look back and I probably did spend too much of my time dutifully, diligently and uncritically just doing what my bosses asked me to do. So I got full marks for diligence less marks than I might have hoped for, for that feeling of fulfillment and making a difference. And for me, there are two key things that feed into my resilience, Thomas. The making a difference point is the first one. And so my advice is take whatever opportunity you can to challenge where appropriate the job as given to you and make sure you are rendering it as meaningful and impactful as you possibly can 
within whatever constraints you have in your bit of the structure. So for me, if when I've done that, then that contributes massively to my resilience. But the other key uh, factor in my resilience is, again, a deeply, deeply personal piece, and it's about my values. So let me take a sideways step here for a moment and say, as a leader um, and as people who have to follow leaders, people have a number of reasons why they might choose to follow you. They might follow you because they have to, because you're the boss. So if you've no other reason for doing it, then you can just about make that work, but it's not brilliant. You have compliant people, you do not have motivated people on fire to deliver. They might follow you if they like you, slightly better than because they have to, but still not brilliant. They might follow you because they like you and respect you, so a little bit better again, you'll probably get more motivation. But the best reasons for people to choose to follow you is because of who you are and what you stand for. Not how many letters you have after your name. Not how um, brilliantly you might conduct yourself in front of a parliamentary committee. Although that is an important skill set, incidentally. But it's because of who you are and what you stand for. So I think, returning to the resilience point, I discovered as I went into tougher and tougher uh, delivery environments that if I wasn't standing firm uh, aligned to my values then my resilience was quite rapidly in jeopardy so if I had found myself um, doing something that in the moment didn't feel that bad and you know, it was my boss that needed me to do it so you kind of get on with it or I did at the time but then you think, do you know what, That I, I have that feeling in my stomach. I am not comfortable with that. It might be an HR issue or generally a people thing. And as I grew stronger and more firm in my own values, I discovered that that's where my resilience became unshakable. So my advice to people is... Um, Become clear as early on as you can about what your personal red lines are. The lines you will not cross for anybody. And if you do that, you don't have to write them up, laminate them and trumpet them. Your people will sense that steadiness coming from you, I believe. And... Um, Conversely, I think we can all observe leaders who haven't done that and who are buffeted quite a lot. And I would think their resilience must be quite low because when you're being buffeted as a leader, boy, do you know it. You might try to hide it, but the voice in your head will not allow you to... Uh, not know that that's happening and your people will be less inclined to follow you if they see you flip-flopping about.
And leadership is is quite trendy just now. I mean, we've even got like dentists and doctors doing podcasts about it. But when you we're we are increasingly being asked to step into leadership roles. What what does good leadership look like to you? And did you have any good role models or mentors that you've learned a lot from over, throughout your career? Okay, so I. I'm a firm believer that leadership is something that every single person in an organization can and should bring. So I would disassociate leadership from any sense of hierarchy. Um, It's something that it's about being clear with people what is the path that we're on and that's why that can happen at different levels in an organization it can happen at relatively junior levels where people are just clear about who's going to play what role within a team and pausing to bring clarity to everybody so you know for me there's probably three key concepts around leadership one is clarity make sure people are clear who's doing what in doing that are we playing to one another's strengths blah blah secondly capacity is it a fair ask it's one thing having clarity but if you haven't given your people enough resource or enough headcount to deliver then it's not a deliverable piece of clarity so um, as a leader you need to do your best to equip in the broadest sense of that term equip your people in the organization to have the capacity to deliver on the ask. And the third thing is cohesion. So let me try and explain that. All too often, I think, particularly in public services, I'm sorry to say, misalignment can creep in. Either internal misalignment, where internal teams are off in one direction uh, and, and they're really pulling in opposite directions, or misalignment between public bodies, so cross-partner misalignment. So I think as a leader, you need to be prepared to call that out and then constructively address it. So clarity, capacity, cohesion, all really important stuff um, from a leadership perspective, but a contribution to all three of those things, I think, can come from all parts of the structure, Mm -hmm. which again takes me back to that point. People need to feel it's safe to call out Mm -hmm. misalignment. Do you see what I mean? You have to have a supportive culture before people will say, uh, our team and that team over there are actually pushing in different directions. Can we talk about that? Because if your culture is wrong, that will land as a more accusatory piece and people will jump into defensive mode Mm -hmm. and you won't really sort it. You've had to take on various roles as you've described throughout, uh, which must have been quite challenging. And one thing that I'm aware of, uh, no matter what stage of your career, it, it takes a certain amount of bravery to take on some of these roles to stick our head above the parapet throughout your career maybe at the earlier stages as well how how did you 
how did you find that bravery? I think um, where to start? You have to dig deep there, and I think that is where a combination of having become clear on your own behalf about on the who you are and what you stand for point. I don't think you can be brave if you're also being buffeted. Uh, if you're if you're flip flopping, you are going to feel doubly terrified. So knowing what your own um, ethical and moral and values anchor points are are really crucial to that personal bravery point. Also, I think uh, having invested in the key relationships around about you becomes a massive part of how you weather those very, very stormy moments. And to be clear, weathering those moments does not mean that you won't have moments when you're plain terrified. I have had moments when I have been terrified, worried. The key to my survival has been never to allow myself to become isolated. And that's where the relationships, not in a namby-pamby sense of going to see my best chum and getting tea and sympathy, although there's a role for that, I might <coughs> point out, but in the sense of having your formal relationships well invested in and being able to proactively uh, go and speak with people whom you know you need their support to help you survive this moment. You can't build that relationship in the eye of a storm. You've got to have done the work before that storm breaks. The other thing I would say, though, is that um, relationships can also help those weather the storm moments, but they can also create an escalating moment if you don't take on the chin criticism that might be due either to you as a leader or to your organization as a public body. I think it's really important to learn the art of accepting that you might be in the eye of a storm because you have fallen short in some way and, and to be prepared to say, we did not, we did not get that right or I did not get that right. I am addressing it, here's how. The really fatal thing is to become defensive and do the move along everybody, nothing to see here bit. So um, the personal courage, to get back to your question, might, if you haven't got that, then you will uh, instinctively get defensive. So my strong advice is uh, push back against that defensive reaction and be prepared to acknowledge where you or your organization has fallen short. If you don't do that, you're unlikely to weather the storm. And if, if you were to have a conversation with yourself at the start of your career, what sort of advice do you think that you'd give yourself? <laughs> oh, so much. Um, 
So let me answer that by offering a couple of areas where I sense a profound change in my approach between my younger self and my more mature self. Firstly, I used to feel under some now ridiculous onus to have the answers. I think I defined my role in terms of when people were stuck, I would go away and swat up and scratch my head along with them and find the answers. Well, what nonsense is that? I absolutely now think that my role is to ask the questions, but crucially to help them find the answers. So it's back to that insights from the frontline point. I resolutely decline to see my colleagues who day-to-day are delivering service delivery on the front line. I refuse to see them as solely service deliverers or implementers, although that's a clearly very critical part of their role. But they are also the people who are the solution finders. They are the people where the best redesign is going to come from. So um, that's why I have totally flipped from thinking I'm the person and the executive level colleagues are the people to offer the answers. Absolutely not. Our role is to make the weather, encourage people to recognize their own power and insights and find a way to mobilize all those assets in the organization. Uh, The second absolute 180 degree turnaround um, is how I manage my resilience. When I was a much younger manager, I used to define good leadership as being at least as knackered as the rest of my team because it wouldn't be good form if I was a bit, you know, refreshed and they were on their knees. Well, how foolish was that? I now understand that when my team are on their knees with exhaustion, which may occur at moments, despite everybody's best efforts, they need me to be the person who still has a little bit of energy left to bring to them, a little bit of detached perspective to bring to them uh, and a bit of freshness that they might temporarily have lost and vice versa when I'm on my knees you know I need them to refresh me so my key role now is to look after the resilience of my people and my own resilience what what are you proudest about in regards to your career and you've achieved yeah, it's there's a thread. I'm I'm not going to name specific bits of delivery because that's a little bit like a asking child. a parent, <laughs> a bit like asking a parent to name a favourite child, and you know therein lies heartache and hurt. So I'm not going there. But what I will give you is the consistent thread, the thematic point, if you like, behind some of my. Um, endeavors of which I'm most proud. And it's the helping people to perform at the best of their ability point. And on one level, it sounds a little bit trite. On another, I think this sits at the heart of how we get high-performing public services. 
it's for me the difference between managing your people and mobilizing your people. Those are two very different environments, a managed one and a mobilized one. In a mobilized environment, people feel empowered. They're encouraged to pursue their own development. Education, in the broadest sense, is valued. Peer learning is valued and space is created for that. Opportunities are created for personal development, lateral as well as upwards, etc., etc. If you can create an organization where those things are understood and valued, then you will begin to get people who are so performing at the top of whatever their personal capabilities allow. And that's, I think that's a win-win for the ultimate customers, our citizens, and for individual members of staff. So a light-hearted final question. <laughs> yes. In another life, what would you have liked to have been if you didn't take this particular career path? I would love, love, love to have uh, danced for my living. Uh, I, yeah. Like a lot of little girls, I went to ballet lessons <laughs> and uh, I, I could never have been a professional ballet dancer. In truth, I wasn't good enough. But uh, the discipline and personal application that those people bring is quite awesome. And I find uh, ballet very moving as, a, as an art form. I think it's uh, quite spectacularly wonderful. So, yeah, in a fantasy life, I would have been a prima ballet. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.